Oh, it is good to see you all. It's good to see you all online, too, because that's the way I saw you the last couple of weeks. Um, we got ourselves finally out of COVID jail, and we're back amongst the living. Um, it's been interesting. I am not an introvert, and I really am not an introvert. It, but it was good. I was with my wife for the week, and we, uh, we, we finally got a house. We moved in, and we were doing things around the house, trying to get things put away and get things packed up, un- unpacked, and then painted and, and whatever else. So we God provided a, an opportunity for us to really get to acquainted with one another through that painting process. After 33 years, we still discover that there are new things about each other. Um, but I am glad that I am back here and, and just excited uh, to be able to share with you all this morning. Uh, just had a leadership retreat uh, Friday night and Saturday with our elders and the staff, and uh, what a good time. So if you have your Bibles with you today, we're going to use them a lot. So you're going to want to get them out and get your fingers ready to go through. But as we begin, we're, we're kind of going through a series right now called Childlike Faith, and in this series, we're trying to answer some of the questions that came from your kids downstairs in their study. And so today, we're going to take a look at one of those questions. Now, let me begin by saying that I'm sure golf is an enjoyable sport. It may even be an inspiring sport. I could quite possibly be a life-changing sport. However, there are people like Mark Twain who believe that golf is a good walk spoiled. That, That was just his philosophy of it. Well, years ago, I was invited by some of my friends to go play a round of golf with them over in Illinois, and uh, that was the first mistake. They invited me. The second was I said yes. And so, so we decided we would go out, and it started out beautiful. What a beautiful day it was. It was gorgeous out, and we made it to the, the, the country club there, and, and, and one of the fellows, he was even so gracious that he bought an extra set of clubs, and since I'm an amateur, well, I'm not really an amateur, I didn't have my own. And so he brought one, and he gave me some beautiful clubs to use that day. And, and, and it, was, it was just a wonderful experience for me. Now, I did learn how to play golf when I was high school. So I, I'm not just a novice. Well, maybe I am. But, but Coach Knight believed, and he saw my swing. He said, man, you've got a great swing, and you really have a lot of potential to do something with this game of golf if you put your, your mind to it. So now let's fast forward 10, 15 years to this day that I'm out there with uh, the fellas. As, as we teed off from that first, on that first hole, man, my, my swing was perfect, and it just went sailing out there. Matter of fact, in one hit, I'm on the green, and the guys are like, ooh, that's good. You know, they're just praising me for it, and they're like, you, surely you, don't, you, don't, you do play, right? I said, no, I, I don't play. And so we got there on the green, and I mean, it was impressive. And so, matter of fact, it was only about three or four yards away from the hole. That was even more impressive by the time we got there. So after about the next five or six hits, I finally got it into the hole. <laughs> yeah, right? Okay, so that, that was, I mean, that was my strategy, to, to think, let them think that I'm really good, and then to really show them how bad I am. But we, we went on and played, and, and, and on the next hole, we could almost have repeated the same thing. And about seven hits, I'm finally in the hole. And we continued going on, and, and everything was great. My, the problem was my long game was excellent. My short game was, well, there wasn't one, is what it come down to. 
And so by the, by the fourth, maybe it was the fifth hole, I, I can't re- really remember, the guys are talking, and Mike, he says, yeah, I'd give him a mulligan. I said, a what? He said, a mulligan. Well, that's a new word to me. So what's a mulligan? And so Mike, being an educator and a superintendent of the schools there, he figured he would school me on what some terminologies are. And so he said, well, a mulligan is this. A mulligan is a do-over, or in your case, John, it's a pass, and we'll move on to the next hole. I said, no, 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 no. You guys are putting it in the hole. I get my chance to put it in the hole. Well, okay, so I averaged about seven point something per hole. But I at least got them in the hole each time. So I began doing a little bit more research this week on what is a mulligan, other than just being a do-over, or in my case, just an automatic pass. And so this is what I discovered, that a mulligan is a second chance to perform an action, usually after the first chance went wrong, maybe through bad luck or a blunder or just, you know, inability, whatever it was. But the best known meaning in golf is, is, is whereby a player is allowed informally allowed catch you, that, that he can then take that, that ball and, and get another hit and, and actually drop a ball back in the same place and try again rather than have to make an extra point on his thing. So Brent Kelly is an award-winning sports journalist online and in print for over 30 years, and he described this as a mulligan as well. He said, he said a mulligan most simply put is a do-over in golf. You hit a bad shot, you take a mulligan and replay that last stroke. You drop a ball on the spot from which you just played and replay. The first bad shot, it's not counted. But you see, that's not quite the rules of the game. But somehow, for, for you know, Bob and Jim and Mike, they figured it would be acceptable for me to do that. So the question then comes this morning is, why didn't God just take a mulligan when he created the world? I mean, everything looked perfect, and then everything kind of went south in the Garden of Eden that day. So why didn't he just take a do-over? I mean, that's a question that is asked by our kids, and I'm going to try to answer it. You see, they asked, well, why didn't God just start over when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, I mean, we all like a do-over, don't we? We, we went one more swing at the bat, just another opportunity, another chance in that competition, or, or maybe one more, one, let me do it again so I can get the landing just right. But not everything in life offers you a mulligan. Matter of fact, some things are classified as a once-in-a-lifetime experience or opportunity. So since God is God and He can do anything that He wants and that He pleases, why didn't He just start over? Well, that's a good question. So I want to try and provide a couple answers for that this morning. Um, and like I said in my midweek article, if I don't get it right, well, then I'll just try it again next week and give you another answer. All right, that would be a mulligan too, right? So one reason I think that God did not just start over with Adam and Eve is because there was something there to salvage. There's something that can be redeemed or, or fixed somehow. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, when on the sixth day God 
had created all the living creatures upon the land, and then he focused his attention on, on crafting and creating man in his image to have dominion and rule over all things on the earth. And he said then, usually at the end of each day, he would say, it's good. But on day six, he says, it's very good. Why didn't he just say, oops, <laughs> I messed up that one. Oh, oh well, I'll fix it later. Or, or why, well, hopefully it'll work out in the end. No, he says, when he looks at, at his creation of man, he says, oh, man, this is really good. Well, then after creating man, Genesis records for us. So open up into Genesis chapter 2 and, and look at verse 15. God records for us in this book his next steps. So it says, The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, I want, to know, want you to know something else. Let's, let's move over to verse 18 again and start reading from there. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. Yeah, I'd have been crazy the last two weeks if I'd have been alone. I, I just don't know how people do that. And so God says, this isn't good, so I'll make a, a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground of the Lord, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The, God, the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for man, for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, he says, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up the place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and he brought her to man. Now, now then the man said, this, this, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, things were truly perfect. So at the ending of the day, God said, oh, this is really good. You see, God was finished with all of his work, so the next day, what's he do? He rests. And, and he, he takes that moment. But there's a, a problem, maybe in all this creation, because God created time in that aspect. And so time rolls on and goes by, and as we 
go by through time, the next thing we find our loving couple hanging out in the center of the Garden of Eden, taking shelter under the one tree in which they were told not to eat from. Why is it that when we're told not to do something, we get as close to that as we possibly can just to be there and yet not to actually do it, and if for some reason we do what we're not supposed to do, well, it happened by accident. You know, I didn't mean to do it. As a matter of fact, it wouldn't have happened if you wouldn't have told me not to do it, so really it's your fault. And that's kind of the conversation that went on with Adam and God after they had eaten of this tree. So, we're, I mean, we're just kind of setting ourselves up for disaster, just as Adam and Eve did there in that garden. And that's precisely what happened. So they both, they both ate of the tree which they were told not to do. And, and all right, okay, I, Satan was there, that serpent, he, he was right there with them in the garden, kind of muddying the waters of interpretation of what God had said. So let's move on to Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, and let's look at verse 7 as well. So when the woman saw that the tree was is good for food, and, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be, be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I mean, they blew it. They did exactly what God had said not to do, and all of a sudden, they realized that there's something wrong. Don't really know the time frame of how long they had been walking through the garden naked, but now all of a sudden, they realize we're naked. Where does that come from? Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that fruit. So, with disobedience, at least in my household, there came consequences. If you're going to do something wrong, there's going to be consequences to that. And God had already told them, if you're going to do this one thing that I'm telling you not to do, there will be consequences and you surely will die. And so, Adam and Eve would now experience the unwavering justice of God. And he would, well, I mean, surely he's, he's going to let them die, right? I mean, that's because that's the consequence. He said it was, but, but not so fast. It wasn't like the poison apple that you eat and, you know, and Disney says, all of a sudden, you know, she's dead or she's in a deep sleep. It doesn't happen that way. Matter of fact, you see, God in his omniscience, his ability to know all things, past, present, future, and even the heart and the very thoughts of man. He already knew that they would disobey, and so he set forth a plan even before they were created. God's plan? Jesus. So let's look here, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, and Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, listen, here it comes. I will put enmity, conflict. I'm going to put trouble. I'm going to put hardship. I'm going to put a, a fight, a battle, a problem 
between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is this plan? It's Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. The overcomer of all things, the victor, the redeemer, it's Jesus. And so now we turn into the New Testament in in 1 Peter, and Peter's trying to explain to the church as well what all is taking place here and how God has set forth this plan. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways and inherited from your forefathers, Adam and the like. Not with perishable things that be such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was, listen, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world was made manifest in the last times for your sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in him. Did you catch that little section there? That before the foundation of this world was even laid... God had already a foreknowledge of Jesus saving us from our sins. Paul tries to explain it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. He says, Blessed be the God and, the, uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before when? before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him things in heaven and things on earth. So even when we move forward into the very New Testament And we see what Peter and Paul are discussing is they're saying that back there when Adam and Eve sinned within that garden, why didn't God just start over? 
because he knew what was going to transpire, so he already set forth a plan with his own foreknowledge, with his own wisdom, that he would send Jesus into this world to redeem us through his blood so that we would be made holy, perfect. Not by what we've done, but by what he has done for us. I've had it kind of heard put in an illustration this way. Let's say you have a fruit... Uh, and then that piece of fruit develops a little bit of that bad rot on it. Well, what do you do with it? I mean, what, what, what could you do with it? Well, I think there's three things you can do. One, you can throw the whole thing out, just toss it away. Maybe, maybe the second thing you could do is you can eat it with all of its rot and ugliness is all. I don't, I don't suggest that. Um, you could also take and cut out the portions that are bad and save what is left. And then, then you can use that fruit for your hunger to satisfy. And that's kind of what God chose to do. Instead of throwing everything out, instead of just accepting everyone's sin and saying, that's okay, come on in, I'll enjoy your worship anyway. He chose to clean us up of all the bad things in life to make us holy and pure and perfect again. And he did that by sending his son to do that intense work in our lives. The penalty for disobedience and rebelliousness from the one rule in the Garden of Eden that God had set forth was death. However, in his compassion, God allowed Adam and Eve to live for a little while longer. I mean, Adam eventually would would end up at the ripe old age of 930 years. And he allowed them to to have children, which was part of his command to them, was to, to, to go and to have children and to create a world of people. So he allows them, permits them to do this. And eventually God would have them pay for their sin and they would die, which was their penalty. However, by allowing Adam and Eve to live and to have children, God was able to save some of mankind in spite of our own rottenness. He would ultimately provide a way to make us better, actually to make us perfect, to make us holy by the blood of His Son. Because we can't be perfect and holy on our own. It is something that by His grace He does to us through His Spirit now, there's another reason I think it may have been that, that God didn't take a mulligan when he created everybody. Maybe had, had God destroyed Adam and Eve before they'd had children, it would have given Satan the victory. You see, history would have been declared that Satan was even greater than God because he was able to annihilate God's creative work and have to destroy it and start over again. Satan... He desired to establish his own throne above that of God's, and he thought he could make himself to be like God. Let's look at Isaiah 14, verse 12, 13, and 14. Isaiah is recalling what transpired in heaven with Satan and God and what all came to be there. So he says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heavens above the stars of God, and I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. You see, it began with Satan questioning God's right to rule, his, his truthfulness, and, and, and if there was a need for mankind to be, be dependent upon God, he was going to interfere with that as well because Satan wanted to be the number one in charge. So we see this beginning to unfold when Satan enters into the storyline here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? She begins to think and gives her response, and Satan comes back again. He said to her in verse 4 and 5, you will surely not die. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of, the, of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what we see in this conversation here in Genesis 3 between the serpent and Eve is basically that Satan, he's trying to convince her that, that God was lying to them about this tree and in reality trying to keep them from discovering that they could actually separate themselves from God and, and, and they could allow them to discover something that was rightfully theirs to begin with, which was to be able to be like God themselves. It doesn't matter that he says you were created in his image. Really, Eve, Adam, you can be just like God. But he doesn't want to share that with you. He's holding back. Now, isn't that exactly what got him expelled from heaven to begin with? Thinking that he could be like God and actually be God himself. And now he's convinced them that they can do the same thing he did in heaven. But he leaves out the part where he's been kicked out of heaven and that they might get kicked out of the garden. Now later, in the book of Job, Satan has a conversation with God and he's questioning the morality and the faithfulness of God's servants on earth. And he's simply saying that the only reason that people like Job worship God is because you keep blessing them, and you've got this hedge of protection around them, so I can't get to them. And if you removed all of the blessings, and if you removed all of your protection from them, they wouldn't follow you. So let me illustrate it this way. Let's say a man has a big family, and one of his neighbors accuses him of doing things inappropriately with his family and the way he's managing his household. The man could, he could have some choices. He hears the guy talking about this, telling, making accusations about how he's raising his kids and how he's dealing with his wife. So he could go over and he could beat up the guy. I mean, he could even kill him. But what does that do? That gives a little more reality what the neighbor was saying, doesn't it? You're actually a bad dude. But he could, instead of doing that, 
he could let his example of a godly lifestyle and the example of his family speak about the character of who he really is. And you see, God has let thousands of years pass by to settle the issue that was raised there in the Garden of Eden. And and he did that to prove that Satan, to prove to Satan that God and his faithful worshipers, they put their devotion in him and his right to rule because they recognize God's holiness and the desire to praise him. Maybe he's allowed this time to go by to show that any other kind of rule separate from God's ultimately results in sinfulness. We've got a wonderful constitution in this country, but the constitution of the United States does not save and does not redeem people. Its laws have been established to protect and to punish, but not to save. Satan, he set himself up as a rival ruler to God when he convinced Adam and Eve to disobey God. So what happens? Let's go back to Isaiah chapter 14 and reread that, but let's also add into that verse 15. So how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. When you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high, and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. The Apostle John kind of gives us a little bit more information in this struggle that, that took place within the realm of heaven between Satan and his rebellion and God. So in Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, we find this explanation of what happened. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon And the dragon and his angels, they fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now... Salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God, the authority of Christ. (coughs) Hang on. (coughs) Have come. (coughs) For the accuser of our brothers has been. You know, that's interesting. When you talk for hours on end on Friday and Saturday. For the accuser of our brothers has been brought thrown down <clears throat> who accused them that day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. 
For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Satan was defeated. He was kicked out of heaven. And he was thrown down to this earth and his time is short and he knows it. So what he wants to do is to take as many with him as of us as possible as his revenge for what God has done to him. <clears throat> but by allowing both Satan and mankind to act independently from God with their own volition, God has demonstrated that he isn't afraid to let us to make a choice of worshiping him because he knows in our very nature, we're going to choose not to. But he has set forth a plan that will redeem us in spite of that. Now, with that being said, God has also appointed for us the exact time and location in which it would be the easiest for us to seek him out and to perhaps find him. Paul, when he goes into the city of Athens, and he's there in the Areopagus, a place where they had a bunch of gods and statues and idols in which they worshipped he walked around that city, he was looking all that, he came upon one god that they were worshiping, one idol, and it had been given this title, unknown god. And so then he began to explain to them in conversation who that unknown god is. Now in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, we want to pick up right there. He says, that unknown god that you worship that is the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. So by allowing Adam and Eve to have children, and eventually from those children would come one who would demonstrate that God can never be defeated because He Himself would then conquer the grave and death. And live again gives us hope. Romans chapter 5 Verse 12 and following. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death 
reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so in one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned on earth, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's get back out on the golf course. And if mulligans are informally allowed, maybe there can be other things that you can do to, to advance your, your score. So three guys were out on a golf course, and it was a wicked course because it starts off with his dog leg that goes around a water hazard. And the first man, he steps up, and he hits it, but he slices it. And it just veers off into that water. So he heads over there to see how far out it was. And as he approached the water, the water divided. And there was his ball on dry ground. So he took another swing, and sure enough, popped it right up there on the green about a foot away from the hole. Not too bad. Now the second man, he gets up, and he eyeballs exactly what he's going to do, and he takes that swing, and it's a beautiful shot, but it starts curving and slicing again too. And would you believe it? Right to that water hazard. So he walks over there, and he heads out walking on the water, and that ball's just balancing there, so he taps it off the water onto the green, and boy, it's just inches away. The third guy... He steps up, and, and he eyes it, and he hits it. Ah, it's going just the same place. Man, it's just this awful. But all of a sudden, out of that water jumps a trout and grabs his ball. Before it can get back in the water, this eagle swoops down and scoops up that trout and carries it off, but then starts to bank over the green. Lightning comes and hits that eagle. The eagle drops the fish. The fish drops the ball and right into the cup. And Moses says to Jesus, I really hate playing golf with your dad. <laughs> a mulligan, maybe you need a do-over in life. And aren't you glad that God is giving us an opportunity that in spite of our sin, we can be redeemed? See, I guess it is time we go back to that original question that's asked by our kids. Why didn't God just start over when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, in essence, He did. We have the opportunity to be born again through the grace of God and our faith in His one and only Son. If you want a mulligan in your life, Today is the day to start over. And let him make a hole in one with you through the one who offered up his life on the cross to redeem you. Stand together.